And for those uh, joining on Facebook who have been with us, I invite you to open your Bible, if you have one, a hard copy or on a phone, tablet, whatever it may be, to the book of Joel. Uh, Joel is in the uh, Old Testament, and so if you find uh, some of the larger prophetic books uh, about midway through the Bible, uh, books like Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, if you find those large ones, any one of those large ones, then uh, at the end of Ezekiel, you'll come to Daniel, then Hosea, and then the book of Joel. For the next couple weeks, we're going to be looking at the book of Joel and a series on the day of the Lord. And so we want to uh, look into what the Lord has for us. Today we'll be looking at verses, uh, chapter 1, verse 1, all the way through chapter 2, uh, verse 27. Uh, we'll read it along as uh, we go. Uh, you may have seen cartoons like uh, this, or today we talk about uh, rending your heart, but you may have seen cartoons like this with the, the sign, uh, the sandwich sign of a man on the street corner, the end is near, no, the end is here, and the cartoon was back uh, on December 21st, 2012. You may remember that was the day that the Mayan calendar ended, and so there was great speculation, there were great thoughts, uh, because of the fact, you see on the newspaper on December 21st, 2012, of war, mayhem, and uncertainty, and here's this guy that says, this guy may finally be on to something. The end is near, the end is here. Now, with that day being predicted as the day that the world would end, obviously uh, that wasn't true, or we would not still be here today. Uh, But today, still, um, like back on December 21st, 2012, there remains much wonder and much talk and much speculation about the end of the world. You hear it more and more with things like the increasing, or with the arrival and the increasing uh, intensity of wildfires and hurricanes and earthquakes and temperatures rising. You see the emergence of COVID-19 and its continuation and the impact that it has had on our country, on the world, on the world economy, on our country's economy. And you see still in those things like mayhem and uh, uncertainty, and there is always the threat of war. And so it continues to be one of these subjects, the end of the world. And the book of Joel is a helpful book for us in our understanding that there will indeed be an end to the world. There will be a day of the Lord, a great day of the Lord, when King Jesus will return, when the wrath of God has been poured out upon uh, all that stand opposed to the name of Jesus, when the punishment and the wrath of God comes, not because he's big, bad, and angry, but because he is just and he has to set everything right. But he's sending his son, and he's bringing his people Israel back. He will bring them back to himself. There is a day, the day of the Lord that will be coming. And Joel is a foundational book in the Old Testament that is quoted most among all the rest of the Old Testament prophets. It's used and carries this theme of the day of the Lord. It's carried over into the New Testament, as we'll see next week. It is foundational for our understanding of the return of Christ for the day of the Lord. 
And so no matter when the timing ends up, we know we are moving in that direction. No matter when that timing comes, we are, as the Bible says, once Jesus came and he died and was resurrected, the Bible says that from there on out until the day of the Lord and the day Jesus returns, we are living in the last days. And so what does it mean? How do we live in the last days? How do we live in response to the coming day of the Lord? And this morning we want to look in this first message in this series on rending our hearts on repentance. What does it look like for the people of God to live in light of the day of the Lord, his coming? We live in repentance. Three C's that will help us walk through this and understand this this morning. If you have sermon notes, you can uh, pull those out of your bulletin and fill those in. Three C's. The first C that we see in uh, Joel is the calamity. The calamity. In verses 1 of chapter 1 through verse 12, it says, Then the word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethuel. We don't know anything more. There's no, a lot of times the prophets would say in this king's life or at this period of time or who he specifically was writing to, there isn't specific detail, though many scholars believe he's writing to the kingdom of Judah, the southern kingdom of Israel, and he's writing to them prior to the Babylonian captivity because of sin that Israel was living in, that Judah was living in. And so he says this, verse 2, Hear this, you elders. Listen, all you, live, all you who live in the land. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? Tell it to your children and let your children tell it to their children and their children to the next generation. Does that sound familiar? We keep hearing these un unprecedented days. We hear that kind of phraseology these days, don't we? And this is Joel builds this. Has anything like this ever happened in your days or in the days of your forefathers? What is it? What happened? Verse four, what the locust swarm has left, the great locusts have eaten. And what the great locusts have left, the young locusts have eaten. And what the young locusts have left, have left, Other locusts have eaten. There is a literal locust plague that has come through Judah that has eaten everything. So Joel says, wake up you drunkards and weep. Wail all you drinkers of wine. Wail because the new wine, because of the new wine, for it's been snatched from your lips. It's not there anymore. It's been taken away. A nation has invaded my land, powerful and without number. It has the teeth of a lion, the fangs of a lioness. It has laid waste my vines and ruined my fig trees. It has stripped off their bark and thrown it away, leaving their branches white. Mourn like a virgin in sackcloth, grieving for the husband of her youth. Grain offerings and drink offerings are cut off from the house of the Lord. The priests are in mourning, those who minister before the Lord. The fields are ruined. The ground is dried up. The grain is destroyed. The new wine is dried up. The oil fails. Despair, you farmers. Wail, you vine growers. Grieve for the wheat and the barley, because the harvest of the field is destroyed. The vine is dried up, and the fig tree is withered. The pomegranate, the palm, and the apple tree, all the trees of the land are dried up. Surely the joy of mankind is withered away. That's a pretty depressing scene, isn't it? Here is Israel who is an agricultural society, and everything that they would depend on, 
grapes, pomegranates, figs, apples, everything that they would depend on, olives, had been eaten and decimated by a locust plague. There's nothing left. It's affected the farmers, obviously, and it's affected the priests because the priests, their needs were supplied physically by the offerings that were brought to the temple. There was nothing and there was no one who was unaffected by this destruction. The calamity is the, in this passage is the literal destruction from these locusts. But there's a greater destruction in chapter 2, verses 1 through 11 that is spoken of that is yet coming. Joel is saying, here is what has happened. You haven't seen anything in your generation or the generation before. Tell it to your kids. This is unprecedented. But there is another destruction, a greater destruction that Joel begins to prophesy that is coming in chapter 2. Blow the trumpet in Zion. Sound the alarm on my holy hill. Let all who live in the land tremble, for here's the phrase, the day of the Lord is coming. It's close at hand, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and blackness. Like dawn spreading across the mountains, a large and mighty army comes, such as never was of old, nor ever will be in ages to come. Before them devours, behind them, uh, before them fire devours, behind them a flame blazes. Before them the land is like the Garden of Eden, behind them a desert waste, nothing escapes them. They have the appearance of horses. They gallop along like cavalry. With the noise like that of chariots, they leap over the mountaintops like a crackling fire consuming stubble, like a mighty army drawn up for battle. At the sight of them, the nations are in anguish. Every face turns pale. They charge like warriors. They scale walls like soldiers. They all march in line, not swerving from their course. They do not jostle each other. Each marches straight ahead. They plunge through defenses without breaking ranks. They rush upon the city. They run along the wall. They climb into the houses like thieves. They enter through the windows." Before them, the earth shakes, the sky trembles, the sun and moon are darkened, the stars no longer shine. And listen to what Joel says about what is coming. The Lord thunders at the head of his army. His forces are beyond number and mighty are those who obey his command. The day of the Lord is great. It is dreadful who can Endure it. From the literal destruction that they saw and felt of the locust, Joel says, look out, there is one, there is greater destruction on the horizon, and it is because of the sin of the people. This is the Lord's work. It's the Lord's army that is coming. As bad as the locust destruction was, this will be greater. Commentators believe that this was likely the Babylonians coming and the Babylonian captivity that was coming and that happened and carried them off, a third dying of the sword, a third of of, uh, starvation, and a third were carried off into captivity. But as in prophecy in the Old Testament, there were many times a, 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 a fulfillment in the life of the prophet, but also a future fulfillment that was yet to come. 
And so just as that was likely fulfilled with the Babylonian captivity, there is yet to be another fulfillment that Joel had in view as the great day of the Lord in which the Lord's wrath would be poured out upon all unbelieving humanity in which he would use it to bring his people Israel back to himself. Where the first destruction was literal locusts, the prophesied greater destruction is a literal army and God, God is at the head. He's the cause of it. He sends them, even though they are opposed to him, he sends them. This is his judgment against sin. And when we hear that, that makes us kind of uneasy, doesn't it? It makes us very uneasy to think that God would be the one who is doing this. To think that God, in this passage that Joel is saying, is the cause of this humanity. The locusts and the armies that are coming. God is the cause of it. It's because of Israel and their sin. You know, even when God may not directly be the cause of calamity in our day, If it's the result of a fallen world, God still deeply desires to use it in the lives of his people to bring about days of the Lord to purify his bride, the church, before the great day. Dr. Tony Evans, in his commentary, says that the day of the Lord refers to a time of judgment that precedes restoration. A time when God recalibrates to make what is wrong right. And so in the short term, God did a recalibrating of Israel. He got their attention. He had to take them off into captivity to get their attention. He had the locusts come to get their attention. And God will use the things of this world, the calamities of this world, if we are looking to say, God, what are you doing in the midst of it even if he is not the direct cause of it, what are you doing in it to recalibrate us, to get our attention, to make what is wrong right in your people? What are you doing with it? What are you doing with it? And so even on this weekend where we celebrate the 20th, and remember the the 20th anniversary of 9-11, and in these days of COVID-19, could it be that these these events have been days that God has been trying to do here in the last days, trying to use them to get his people purified, his church ready. In the days of Israel, Joel gave the people a specific directive in response. He gave them a second C, and that was he gave them a call. And here is the call. The call... In verses in chapter one, verses thirteen through twenty, is that they would be set and they would set themselves to desperate seeking, to desperate seeking. The call that he gives in light of the locusts is put on sackcloth, O priests, and mourn. Wail, you who minister before the altar. Come spend the night in sackcloth, you who minister before my God. For the grain offerings and drink offerings are withheld from the house of your God. Declare a holy fast. Call a sacred assembly. Summon the elders and all who live in the land to the house of the Lord your God. And cry out to the Lord. Alas for that day. For the day of the Lord is near. It will come like destruction from the Almighty. 
Has not food been cut off before our very eyes? Joy and gladness from the house of our God. The seeds are shriveled, or shriveled beneath the clods. The storehouses are in ruins. The granaries have been broken down, for the grain has dried up. How the cattle mo- moan. The herds mill about because they have no pasture. Even the flocks of sheep are suffering. To you, O Lord, I call. For fire has devoured the open pastures, and flames have burned up all the trees of the field. Even the wild animals pant for you. The streams of water have dried up, and fire has devoured the open pasture. Joel calls the priests, and he calls the elders to come together to seek the Lord in his house. He tells them to put on sackcloth, uncomfortable, scratchy cloth, and to mourn, and to fast, and to wail. Just as the the animals were desperate, and just as the animals were uncomfortable not having the food that they needed and the pasture that they needed, the animals are moaning. So Joel was calling them to become in the same way desperate and uncomfortable before God in in contrast to their current sin state. Saying, cast off all of it, come together fast, put on sackcloth, mourn, wail, become uncomfortable, seek the Lord, gather in his temple. This really is why we fast. We fast to remind ourselves of our desperate state before God and our desperate need of God. It's not just to to do something to be spiritual. It is a reminder every time we miss a meal and our stomachs begin to growl. It reminds us, I am in desperate need of God. And instead of turning to food to satisfy us, we turn to prayer, we turn to scripture, we turn to, to, to worship, we turn to going away by ourselves with the Lord to be able to say, God, I am desperately seeking you. I need you. Just as my body is crying out for food, I need you. I put it aside because I need you. I'm desperate. Desperately seeking you. He calls them to do this so that it will lead to wholehearted repentance. Wholehearted repentance. After the prophesied of what is coming, chapter 2, verse 12 says, even now declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Who knows? He may turn and have pity and leave behind a blessing, grain offerings and drink offerings for the Lord your God. Blow the trumpet in Zion, declare a holy fast, call a sacred assembly. Gather now all the people, consecrate the assembly, set them apart. Bring together the elders, gather the children, those nursing at the breast. Let the bridegroom leave his room and the bride her chamber. They're getting ready for their wedding Cancel the thing. Put it on pause. This is more important. Let the priests who minister before the Lord, verse 17, weep between the temple porch and the altar. Let them say, spare your people, O Lord. Do not make your inheritance an object of scorn, a byword among the nations. Why should they say among the peoples, 
Where is their God? Joel calls everyone to stop. To stop what they're doing. And to gather and to come and to cry out to the Lord in repentance. In a sacred assembly and fasting and weeping and in mourning because of their sin state. He calls them not to repent outwardly only, but he calls them to repent desperately from the heart. He tells them, don't rend, or what rend means is not a word that we use often. It's tear, to tear into. Do not tear into your garments. Which is what often they would, the Lord would call and the prophets would call the people to, to come and to have their garments and to show outwardly their deep repentance and their desperate seeking, their whole heart repentance by tearing their clothes in two pieces. It was a way of saying, I am broken and I am undone. I'm that desperate and I'm acknowledging my repentance wholeheartedly in that way by tearing my clothes in two. Joel says, don't do that. Don't rend, don't tear your clothes. He says, rend, tear your heart in two. Can you imagine if that was a, 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 this is a a, a spiritual way to be able to say a, a, a physical example. But can you imagine what would happen if someone was literally able to tear their heart in two, there would be no hope for them to live. Not even the greatest, most skilled heart surgeon would be able to put a human heart back together if it had been torn in two pieces. It's too complex. The fibers are so intricate that to be able to sew it back together and make it work again, there would be no hope. And so what God is calling his people to do through Joel is don't rip clothes because you can go get those again. That's outward, superficial repentance. Rip your heart into because only then, the only hope you have is for God to put you back together. To be so desperately broken, to come to the end of yourself, to be grieved so deeply by your sin that it's as if your heart is being torn in two before Almighty God. You are that broken and humbled. Your only hope is for him to come and to put you back together. Friends, how often, when was the last time you got to brokenness and repentance before the Lord in that way? I don't know about you, but I... There have been a few times in my life where I could say my heart was rended before the Lord. And those were the times where God did the deepest work in my life. But a lot of times, to be perfectly honest, when it comes to repentance, I'm more of a garment render than a heart render. And I would dare to say that most of us are like that. We don't get to that point where it's so gut-wrenching that we don't allow ourselves to go that far and realize how desperately sinful we are at our core and how much we have offended a perfect and holy God that we are so broken within us that there's weeping and mourning and wailing and fasting and we are not just outwardly saying, oh God, I'm sorry. We cannot stop crying out before the Lord because we recognize how deeply we have offended a perfect holy God. 
This is what Joel is calling the people to. Not some superficial kind of repentance, a wholehearted repentance. It's the kind of sorrow that forever changes you. And it's based upon verse 13, rend your heart, not your garments. Return to the Lord your God, for he is gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in love, and he relents from sending calamity. Just listen to that for a minute. This is not like get miserable before a God who just cannot wait to beat you down. This is get the picture of God. Return to the Lord. Why? He's gracious. He gives us not just what we don't deserve, but he gives us what? He gives us extra. He's compassionate. He's slow to anger. He abounds in love, and he is a God, when we come to these plates, who relents from sending calamity. This is the God that Joel is calling the people to. Not one who is there with his arms crossed. Not one who is shaking his head saying, how could you? Not one who is saying, come grovel to me. A God who is abounding in love, who is gracious and compassionate, who is slow to anger and welcomes his people back to himself. This is our God. And oftentimes we don't go to those places of deep repentance because we think God's up there going, how could you? What in the world? You're really going to have to work to get back to me now. You've gone so far. He is ready. He sent, his, he sent his prophets. He sent these armies of locusts to be able to say, I'm here. Wake up, you drunkards. Wake up, you sleepers. I'm here. Rend your hearts. I'm here. Return to me. I am gracious and compassionate. I'm slow to anger. I'm abounding to love in love. And you come to me, and I am a God who relents. I only send it because I'm calling you. And I'm using it to call you back to me. This is the call. Desperate seeking and wholehearted repentance. I mentioned a little earlier about September 11th. And could, these, could that have been a time when God was trying to get our attention? I was doing an internship for seminary in Ohio when September 11th happened. And that following Sunday, the nation had been called to come back to God. You may remember that. Come back, seek God. And that Sunday, the church was just packed. I mean, every seat was full. Two services, every seat was full. You weren't sure if you are going to get everybody in. I remember talking to the pastor who I was doing this internship under after the service was over, and he had been in ministry for some 25 years or more. And I said, is this what revival looks like? And he skeptically said, we'll see next Sunday. Next Sunday, there were more people than there usually were, but there weren't nearly as many people as the Sunday before. And by the third Sunday after 9-11, it was business back to usual. There were some who were permanently changed by 9-11, but I would say as a nation, and I'm not talking our nation, I'm talking about the church in America, we were more in the garment-rending business than the heart-rending business. 
9-11, I believe, was a garment-rending repentance because it lasted just a short time. I mentioned could COVID-19 and all the days since then with everything that's been going on with the racial reckoning, with the election cycle, with all of these things, mass vaccines, all this kind of stuff. Could these be things that God is saying, hey, here, come, come, come return to me. He's trying to get the attention of his people. And early on in the days of lockdown, you heard talk of repentance. but it's soon been replaced by so many other things. And I would say that COVID-19 and the American church's response has been more of a garment-rending repentance, not a heart-rending repentance. And I believe these last 18 months or so have revealed the state of the American church. There's lots of things that could be said, but as I just sat and thought through and tried to seek what the Lord, how the Lord sees it. I believe these last 18 months have revealed a church in America who values comfort and ease over sacrifice, inconvenience, and death to self. I believe these days have revealed the church in America having sought political power instead of spiritual power. I believe these days that the American church has revealed that we're a church who demands an unbelieving culture to be righteous instead of hungering and thirsting after righteousness ourselves. I believe these months have revealed to us an American church who fights over how and when and where worship should be conducted instead of fighting and contending for the manifest presence of God in worship. If we fought as hard for the presence as we do for the whens and the wheres and the hows, we'd be a different people. Believe it's revealed to us an American church who exalts rugged individualism over vulnerable, authentic, and interdependent relationships in the body of Christ. And among other things, I believe it's revealed a church in America who would rather listen to the pundits than the prophets of God. There's probably many more things that could be said if we sat before the Lord together of what he is saying, what he's calling us to. These are some things to repent of, I believe, but supremely important to remember above all is who we repent to what the nature and character of our God that we repent 